All right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 150 this morning. Praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, we are beginning a series this morning in which we're going to take a look at why Sunday morning matters. We're going to spend six weeks on this topic. And my goal through this series is to help us see why gathering as God's people in church on Sunday morning is of great importance. And I will be completely transparent. One of the reasons why I want to do this is because, you know, there is a number of people who call Grace Church home who have not yet felt ready to resume resume, uh, public worship. And I want to be abundantly clear, there are some who should not return right now. We are, after all, still in a pandemic. And there is more than a fair amount of uncertainty that remains. We're doing everything we can to ensure a safe environment here on Sunday morning, but some need to decide for themselves whether or not they should be here given given any particular risks that they may face. That's why I'm so thankful for the live stream. Back in March of 2020, when when COVID first hit, we canceled our worship service on March 15th, I think it was. On March 14th was when the Monroe County Health Advisories were coming out, no gatherings above 100 people. And then an hour later, no gatherings above 50 people. And then I think it was an hour later, no gatherings above 25 people. So, you know, the elders and I talked and, and we said, we need to cancel worship tomorrow. Can't, you shut down the worship service, nobody can gather, and then we'll just figure out what to do from there. So we shut down that service, March 15th, and in that week in between, March 15th and March 22nd, uh, we, we huddled together, we, we grabbed a few of our, our tech people, and just said, how could we manage a live stream so that we can resume worship on March 22nd, just one week later? We borrowed a little little handheld camera from my daughter, um, set it on a tripod. It was literally right here in front. That was so weird to have like a tripod and a camera. Like it's on top of the communion table, just looking right at me. Um, the, our sound booth at that point was wired up there. And so the, there was really no way to have the camera here and sound there. So one of our tech guys, you know, kind of scrounged around up in that attic and found a little soundboard that we had inherited when we bought the building back in 2015. I've said before, they MacGyvered something together. If you remember that MacGyver television show, they made it work. And on March 22nd, we had a live stream. And I'm so thankful for that. Because on Monday, March 23rd, I got some emails, I got some phone calls from people saying, it meant so much to me to feel like we were still together even though we weren't physically together. And so I am thankful for the live stream. I'll admit that up until that point, I was very resistant to the idea of doing anything like a live stream. But I realized at that moment, 
that this wasn't just something that was about, you know, the pandemic and its consequences. There have always been people at Grace Church, and this is true at any church, people who can't come to church either because they're shut in or they're dealing with a particular, uh, because of immune, you know, compromise, they can't, they don't come during the winter months when flu season is spiking. I mean, all these reasons why people would stay home. And, or or they were just sick that day. And the, the only option prior to the live stream was to say, well, the sermon will be uploaded to the website by Tuesday. And that, you know, I mean, whatever, my preaching. But for, for the opportunity to be able to actually, from home, participate in spirit, if not in person, uh, with the whole worship service as it's happening, it was very significant post-pandemic. It still is for some who are worshiping from home now, and I'm so thankful that long after this pandemic is done, when there still will continue to be people who must stay home, they will have this option. However, there are some of us who are at home and are in that category of could return to worship, but having a hard time making that transition back to public worship, and I get it, I mean, I kind of don't get it because I am here every Sunday. But I can imagine how tempting it would be to stay home, right? The couch is probably more comfortable than these pews. Uh, Your home is probably air-conditioned and this sanctuary is not. You don't have to wrangle the kids and get them to church. You can get up and grab another cup of coffee whenever you want, It seems like there is so much to be gained. You can say, listen, I am more able to focus in because I don't have all these distractions around me. I don't have to worry about keeping my my child quiet in the pew because I'm worried about someone else's thinking. I don't have to worry about any of that. I can just dial in on the service. And it seems like, isn't this better? And I hope that over the course of these six weeks, you will realize that though there is gain through the live stream, there is loss because of not being gathered with God's people on Sunday morning. So we're going to begin this morning. Oh, let me just say this again. I I don't want to make it sound like this is only happening because of the pandemic. This was a problem long before the pandemic. And not just in America in the, you know, 20th, 21st century. This goes way back. I read a sermon. This is part of what got the juices flowing for me for this sermon series. I read a sermon by a Puritan pastor 1700s, title of the sermon, Public Worship to be Preferred over Private. 18 pages of 10-point font. Be thankful, my friends, that if you were to take the manuscript, which I don't use, but if you were to develop a manuscript from one of my sermons, it would not be 18 pages of 10-point font. But in that 18 pages, there was a great case made for the significance of public worship. Point being, That sermon had to be preached 300 years ago. This is not a new problem. So I'm hoping that what will happen over the course of these next six weeks is that we will see the beauty, the necessity, the value of public worship. I am not trying to, I'm looking, I should look at the screen, uh, at at the camera. I'm not trying to guilt you into coming back. My desire is that we will see this is a good thing. I want to be a part of that. Again, use wisdom given illnesses or whatever you may be dealing with. Again, this is not guilt motivation. My desire 
is that we will say, that you will say, you know what, I'm not thrilled about the fact that they're asking me to wear a mask, but I will do that because I want to be gathered with God's people. I'm not thrilled about the fact that my kids are going to complain all the way there and all the way home, but I will endure that because I see the value of gathered public worship with God's people on Sunday morning. So Psalm 150, we're going to take a look first this week at Psalm 150. Psalm 150 ends the Psalter, the the book or the collection of Psalms. There's a call here to not just people, but all creation, everything that has breath to praise the Lord. So it's a fitting place to begin and launch into a discussion of worship. And I want to organize our thinking about what worship is this morning under the following four headings. First, revelation and response. Revelation and response. Second, public and private. Public and private. Third, lips and lives. And then fourth, centered on Christ. Revelation and response. Public and private. Lips and lives centered on Christ. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the gift of technology that enables our brothers and sisters who simply cannot and should not be here this morning to have an opportunity to be gathered in spirit with your people. Lord, your spirit is working there with them, in them. And so we give you thanks for that. But Lord, we miss our brothers and sisters when we're not together for any reason, whatever the cause may be. And so I pray, Lord, that for all of us, whether we're here every Sunday or not able to be here occasionally or not able to be here at all um, for this season out of concern because of the pandemic, that, that, Lord, we would see the beauty and the value of public worship and desire to be together as soon as it is possible. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so revelation and response. I want to offer you a definition of worship. And there's, you can look at, you know, 15 different, you know, worship um, books, books on worship, and they're all going to come back to basically this definition. So composite definition, if you will. Let me define it like this. Worship is the response, let me say our response, our response of adoration and devotion to the revelation of the glory of God. Our response of adoration and devotion to the revelation of the glory of God. So let's talk first about the revelation of his glory. Where do we see that here in, verse, in, in Psalm 150? And I want you to look at verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Here the psalmist gives us the reasons to worship God. And it all has to do with how he has revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself by means of his works and by means of his worth, his excellent greatness, what he has done and who he is. These are the reasons that the psalmist calls us to worship God. By his works and because of his person, who he is, his glory is manifest to us. We would know nothing about God except for the fact that there's a God who exists because he wired us that way as human beings to have that sense of who he is or the the fact that there is a God who exists. We would know nothing about God in terms of his personhood or his works 
if he had not revealed himself to us. Revelation of his glory. Now, we'll talk more about his glory next week, but let me just say this much about God's glory. God's glory, what is it? It's the revelation of his holiness. You think about the idea of the fear of the Lord. Think of Isaiah in chapter 6 in the temple, beholding the glory of the Lord and feeling as though he will be undone. Unless and until atonement is made so that he can stand in the presence of God without dread. Holiness, his majesty, his sovereignty, his beauty, maybe a word that we don't tend to think of when it comes to a manifestation or revelation of God's glory. The perfect harmony of, of all of who he is, his perfection, his love. His love for his people, his covenant love by which he's pledged himself to them, but also the love that exists within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in which he invites us into his love, not because of need, but that we might experience more of what love really is. In all these ways, the glory of God is revealed to us, and the revelation of his glory demands a response. This entire psalm, in fact, you could say all the psalms, are a call to worship. It's a call to respond to this God who we are increasingly seeing is of supreme worth, worthy of our worthship, from which the word worship derives. It's a call to respond. That is why our worship service begins with a call to worship. We have this moment in which we quiet our hearts before the service begins. Hopefully that is just kind of, you know, putting the bow on something you've been doing all morning and maybe even perhaps throughout the course of the week. I'm going to be worshiping God on Sunday. I want to prepare my heart for that. Most of us, however, self very much included, get here on Sunday morning and it's like, okay, where am I? Oh, I'm in church. I'm going to be before the Lord. I'm going to worship him. I've got a few minutes now to quiet my heart. And then there's this call to worship. Every week, the word of God calls us together into God's presence to worship him. Now, who responds to that call? To answer that question, you step back and ask, who responds to the capital T, call capital C? The call of God into salvation. In other words, who looks to God for salvation in Christ alone anyway? And the Bible makes it abundantly clear, only those whom God has called, made alive. Paul in Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our transgressions and sin until we are made alive in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, unless a man be born again in John chapter 3, he will not see eternal life. Salvation begins with God's call. This work of regeneration to give us faith to believe. It begins also bound up together our response So that we can say to our non-Christian friends and neighbors, you must put your hope in Jesus Christ for your salvation and know that when and if God calls, they will believe. But then every time we gather together on Sunday morning, we're reminded 
I'm here because God calls. And even now, his word is calling me in to worship. Call and response. Now, the implication then is this. If you find yourself wanting to be more um, stirred in worship, if you find yourself wanting to be more responsive in worship, the way to get there is to ask God to reveal more of himself to you. To ask God to make his word live in you. To ask God the Holy Spirit to help you be attentive to what is happening when we gather for worship. To pray with David that you will have this kind of a burden. Psalm 27 verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, or the word can be translated, meditate in his temple. David is thinking not about a private experience in a tent or in, a te- in his home with the Lord, he's thinking about gathered worship. I want to be there in order to be with him. And this is the one thing that I desire. Be praying that God would work that kind of heart in you. And you will find that there's more going on here than meets the eye. Revelation response, second, public and private. Now, we talk a lot about private worship, about the need to have this daily time of being present before God in his word and talking to him, communicating with him in prayer. If you're not signed up for our daily worship guides, I want to encourage you to contact the church office, email, we'll email us, we'll get you set up so that you receive very early in the morning, a daily uh, worship, a little section of scripture, a prayer, a song, a catechism question, a way in which you can deepen your walk with the Lord privately. We talk frequently about family discipleship and the need for parents to be better equipped and encouraged and, and supported to have the home be a place where husband and wife and children together are worshiping God. All of this springs from places like Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your home and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And so this aspect of private family worship continuing on throughout the course of the week. But look back at Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. There is this call to public worship. All the Psalms, remember, all the Psalms are for public worship. This was the songbook of God's people. And for many churches, it still is the songbook for God's people. So I, I want to give you just a, a quick you know, preview of where we're headed over the next five weeks after today. First, I, I'm hoping to convince you, help you see that God is more glorified when we gather for worship. God is more glorified when we gather for worship. Unless we forget, that is kind of the point anyway when it comes to worship, glorifying God. 
I want us to see that God is more fully present to us when we gather together for worship. I want us to see that God's people are most built up when we gather together for worship. I want us to see that the lost are most effectively reached when they gather with us for worship. And I want us to see that heaven touches earth when we gather for worship. Summary, revelation and response, public and private. Third, lips and lives. Lips and lives. Paul in Romans 12:1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or that could be translated reasonable service. All of life is worship. That is what Paul is telling us here in Romans 12, verse 1. All of life. Your everyday living living is an offering before the Lord. Now, it would be so tempting to come with these examples of these, you know, great heroes of the faith, men and women who have done amazing things throughout history, by which they have clearly, in a way that is known by all and celebrated by all, offered their bodies as living sacrifices. But can I say this? That when you offer your day-to-day existence, your daily mundane reality to the Lord, when you change the diaper, when you change the tire, when you study for the test, when you administer the test, your day-to-day, everyday reality, the normal Christian life offered as a service to God brings him glory. And it is like the fragrant offering that was laid before the Lord when Noah got off the ark. It is a pleasing aroma to him. All of life is worship. That's why this, I love this quote from Harold Best. Harold Best says this, we don't gather to worship, we gather as continuous worshipers. Isn't that great? We don't gather, we are always worshiping God. We do it with our lives, but we also do it with our lips when we come here together on Sunday morning. Now, let me talk a little bit about, let me use the theological term here, the regulative principle. The regulative principle of worship. You're thinking right now, oh boy, he's starting to sound so Presbyterian. Let me say that I'm actually sounding biblical. Okay? The regulative principle says this. The regulative principle is the conviction that everything that is done in public worship must have warrant in Scripture, either by direct command or by implication. Can I say that again? Everything, this is the conviction that everything's done in public worship must have warrant in Scripture, either by direct command or by implication. In other words, we seek to worship God the way God has said that he wants to be worshiped. Now that's actually incredibly freeing. This is a holy God we're talking about and we don't have to wonder, is this acceptable worship to him? He said, this is acceptable worship to me. And so we do our best to worship God according to the the principles, the commands, or by necessary and, and due implication from scripture, how he has said we are to worship him. So think for a second about everything that we do in the worship service. Every week there is this call to worship. Every week there is this weekly, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. 
consistent call throughout Scripture, throughout the Psalms. Every week there is singing our joyful response to the God who has called us to himself. Every week there is confession, confession of sin. You see that throughout Scripture as well. An invitation to soften rather than harden our hearts. An invitation to no longer push aside the things that we're trying to forget, but instead be real before God. Confession followed by the assurance of forgiveness, this rehearsal of the gospel that we get every week. And it is, it's public. I love the fact that we speak these words together. We also have that time where we can quietly, you know, in our hearts, confess that sin to the Lord that we wouldn't want to speak out loud. But we have this time when we're doing this together. I remember when I first began to um, uh, be part of a church that was doing this kind of thing, where there was, you know, responsive readings going on. I used to think, oh, that drives me crazy. Because I'm not saying it like I would say it if I were just saying it by myself. I'm not using the same kind of intonation or the same rhythm. It feels so artificial. Surely God isn't pleased. The Psalms were sung by God's people. The Psalms are made up of professions of faith, of confessions of sin. The fact of the matter is, when we speak these words together in unison, it is a way of expressing the fact that it's not just me, but we who need to confess our sin. It's not just me, but we who need to receive the assurance of God's forgiveness. When we profess our faith, it's not just me that believes this, it's us. We believe this. And I get to hear you saying this. And you get to hear me saying this. And there is such significance and beauty in that. Every week there are prayers, including the congregational prayer. Carl gave the congregational prayer this morning. He was, if you will, praying before God the Father with Christ as his mediator because Jesus is our mediator always and forever. And we were there in a, as a, in a sense, if you can picture, you know, something going on in the, in the heavenly realms with Carl representing Grace Church before the throne of God and us with our amens and our hearts behind him, joining him in prayer, as it were, every week. Every week, the word of God is read and proclaimed. Every week, there's an offering to support the work of the church in the world. Every week, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is offered so that God's people, as they receive it by faith in Jesus, can be spiritually nourished. Every week, we stand and profess our faith. Every week, God's last word to us is a word of benediction, a word of blessing and of sending. Every week, our last word to God is a word of glory. It's a doxa logos. It's a glory word. And then we leave. And then we get to come back next week and do it again. It is not arrogant to say that every church should be doing what we do. Now, these are elements that ought to be present in every church. Now, the way that those elements are expressed can look radically different. Right? There could be songs, you know, with a jazz band. There could be songs with a full orchestra. There could be songs with just a person at a guitar or a piano or a cappella. Somebody has a pitch pipe and they just get us going. All these are acceptable. What matters is that people are singing. 
The preaching of the world may be, may be the preaching of the word, maybe 20 minutes long, it may be an hour and 20 minutes long. I know which direction we tend to tilt, self-included. John Stott once said, every sermon should feel like 20 minutes, whether it is or not. It doesn't matter how long the sermon is. It matters that the word be preached and proclaimed. So all these things need to be present in worship. And they have been present in worship for as long as the church has been around. There was someone once who, who came, this was years ago, but here, um, someone who came and, and visited and said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to stay at Grace Church. I'm not going to make it my home. I said, okay, it's fine. You know, it's Plenty of good churches in the area. Would you like me to recommend a couple to you? And this person said, you know, the reason why I'm leaving is because you're so innovative in your worship. I said, what? She said, well, you know, this call to worship, the standing, the sitting, the, the reciting. And I was like, wait, time out. And, and she, I shouldn't have said she. This person was a younger individual, someone who had been raised in a culture in our country where the predominant you know, expression of church life on Sunday morning was kind of like a youth group meeting. Somebody gave the announcements, there were some songs, there was a message, and then people were dismissed. And so what happens here felt very innovative, and in fact, it's historical. All right, let's move on, third and finally. Oh, let me, let me say this, though. Lips and lives from the heart right? This cannot be perfunctory, external. We do these things. We're going through the motions, and God is somehow pleased. If you know Isaiah the prophet, and if you know Jesus from Mark chapter 7, verse 6, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's why, fourth point, it must be centered in and on Christ. Centered in and on Christ. I love in our bulletin, you know, it, it, it says at the top that the worship leader this morning is Keiko Ying. And you could say that any one of the people that are involved, that, that me is the person who put the liturgy together, or Carl's the one who interceded in prayer, or me is the one who's preaching. You could almost say we're all worship leaders. On a Sunday morning, Grace Church, earthly sense, yes. Heavenly sense where it matters, nope. Jesus is the worship leader. Jesus is the one who's always interceding, interceding before God on behalf of his people every single Sunday. And because of God's grace, because by faith God's people are united to Jesus, union with Christ, and in Christ, union with one another, our worship is centered in Jesus. Jesus is the one in whom we live, and consequently, in whom we can be present before God. Centered in Jesus, centered on Jesus. All the blessings, all the, the reasons, the work and the worth of God finds its ultimate expression not in creation, but in redemption, in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God gave Jesus that we might worship Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter four, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One day we will see him face to face. 
Until then, we have his word, we have his spirit dwelling among us that we might turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. Things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his beauty and grace. I'll end with this quote from John Frame. John Frame says this about worship. In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history, the goal of the whole Christian story. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life seen as a priestly offering to God. And when we meet together as a church, our time of worship is not merely a preliminary to something else. Rather, it is the whole point of our existence as the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this place where we can gather. Lord, we are thankful that we are a people bound together by your grace, joined together through our union with you, this great and wonderful mystery. We pray, O oh God, that our worship would be from the heart and therefore acceptable to you regardless of the form. And we pray, oh God, that as these weeks go on, you would help us to either be so ready to be here on Sunday morning and so eager to hear from you and be in your presence, or for those who can't yet be here, so eager for when that day will come, that the highlight of our week, oh Lord, is being together with you and your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.